Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. This is Lance. And I'm Derek. Tonight, we'll be continuing our discussion on crime and criminal justice within the United States and begin talking about prison and prison abolition. I think in, in any meaningful conversation about prison abolition, we need to define our terms. So when we talk about prison, there are two things that people talk about that are, are fairly interchangeable conversationally, but from a, a functional definition perspective, they're very different things. And those two things are jail and prison. So jail is a place for people awaiting trial or people who are being held for minor crimes. Prison is a place for people who have been convicted of crimes, more serious crimes than the minor crimes that people are placed in jail for. One of the other main differences between jail and prison is also the length of time that you're going to be spending in there. In, in a typical jail, you'll be spending days, maybe weeks, maybe up to about a month um, if you're actually convicted of a minor crime and you're sentenced to a month of jail time. Whereas with prisons, that's when we start talking about things in terms of months upon years into decades and life sentences and, you know, back-to-back -back life sentences, which seems quite redundant, but um, such things do exist. So that's, that's really the key difference that I see in defining the terms is when we talk about the people who are in jail, we, th we are really going to be talking more about, like, the people who are caught, like, trespassing in the middle of the night or who are passed out drunk in an alleyway who are basically just being held until they can be processed within the jail system or who are simply awaiting sobering up from a night on a bender. Whereas with the prison population, we're talking about people who have been arrested, who have gone to court, who have been convicted by a judge, and who have been sentenced to a defined period of time. Here's the only problem with that. We know that that's not always the case. True. We know that there was a young man who was put in Rikers Island Penitentiary in New York State who was accused of stealing a backpack. He was put into an adult prison without ever setting foot in a courtroom or being tried. And he was there for two years before he committed suicide. So there's the first malfunction of our, our criminal justice system in terms of how we're placing people in our jail and prison systems. And also how things are supposed to work and this beautiful, wonderful world of should have or should be is in a prescribed manner or in a prescribed manner, this is how things are supposed to function versus when the, you know, when we hit real life and things actually start working on the day-to-day -day function, what is actually happening is very rarely going to be exactly what we intended on paper. And that's where you get human interpretation, human bias, and human, I'll say error, but also human negligence. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of times there are, are consequences not dissimilar to this specific instance that I mentioned at Rikers Island. Even even when you're just looking at people who have been put in prison that have completed our, our marathon through the court system, 
somewhere between 2.3 and 5% of all incarcerated people in the country are wrongfully imprisoned because they were innocent of the crime that they were accused of. Oh, which um, ties into last episode's conversation where we talked about policing in America and how bias can it affect the interactions between the police officer and the citizen and how the police officer approaching that interaction with a specific intent and a specific bias is going to produce an outcome that is not logically related to the event that has actually transpired. And that can kickstart a series of events where the officer who is subject to bias and prejudice interacts with a person who has a natural and justifiable fear of this person, so they are going to act defensively and this will lead to that person being put in jail and who knows how long it will be before they actually get charged who knows how those charges are going to be related to the original interaction and then eventually this will go to court and something that if human bias had not been part of it would have been probably just a routine traffic stop you know expired license plates or a lapse in vehicle insurance, things that are just bureaucratic, hey, we need this done, somehow gets blown out of proportion, and this person now ends up spending two to five years or more in prison. Before we get too far into talking about prison abolition work, I think it's it's really important to go over some of the, the facts and figures about our current carceral system. So across the country, between both prisons and jails, there are, at any given point in time, around 2.3 million people incarcerated. That's the highest incarceration rate in the world. It is 639 people in jail or prison per 100,000 people. And the next closest country to us has almost a hundred less people in prison, and that's El Salvador. When we're talking about the difference between jail and prison, there's a difference in population size as well. So there's a, about 1.5 million people in prison, and approximately 631,000 people in jail. The, the interesting thing is that the number of people in jail fluctuates pretty wildly from day to day because every year, 10.6 million people go to jail. And jail kind of acts as like the front door for the carceral system. It's where, again, people hang out waiting to either be released or to be charged and it's where people stay when they have been charged and are going through the, the court process. But 10.6 million arrests that go to jail each year. Looking at the, the different populations between jail and prison, there's a lot that needs to be talked about in terms of recidivism. So recidivism is the incidence of someone who has been incarcerated being released into the general public and then either committing the same crime or committing a new crime. And when we're looking at the 10.6 million people who go to jail each year, one in four people will be back in jail within a year. The recidivism rates for the prison population are slightly higher. For people convicted of nonviolent crimes, recidivism sits about 40%. So four out of 10 nonviolent criminals will recommit and go through the whole process of arrest, court, prison again. 64% of people who commit violent offenses recommit. And that actually, the first time I heard that number, that actually startled me. 
because the whole point of our prison system is theoretically to reform these people. Or if you can't reform to at least deter, we are supposed to create a consequence so undesirable that you stop doing what gets you in jail or prison. And that's simply not happening and never has been the case, historically speaking. I mean, excluding cases of, like, the Tower of London, where people get beheaded there. But I think if we look at a recidivism rate, another thing to look at is one of the key components of the American criminal justice system is how much we police addiction disorders. And when you are addicted to a chemical, any of the street drugs out there that have physiological addiction, just because you went to prison doesn't mean you're not addicted and it doesn't mean you're not still struggling with those behavioral health challenges. So, okay, you went to prison, you spent your two to five years or however long in there, and you get out and immediately you're going to be back where you were, probably in an even more stressful and anxious situation, and you're immediately going to seek what you are addicted to. And when you see what you were addicted to, and that was what you got you in prison, all of a sudden you're now very much at risk of getting caught and getting arrested for the exact same thing again. And in most jurisdictions, they have progressive discipline where, okay, you get arrested the first time, it's 18 months in prison. You get arrested the second time, it's five years in prison. You get arrested a third time, it so on and so forth, and becomes a lot more open to interpretation and discretion of the judicial wing. I think it's it's really important to recognize what you're saying as being a, a vital part of this conversation. One in five incarcerated people has been locked up because of a drug offense. 20% of our, our prison population is there on drug charges. That can be anything from carrying a personal amount to I'm trying to become a self-made millionaire. And when we're talking about these folks who are, are in prison for drug offenses, there are really two different conversations that we need to have. The first is the over-criminalization and over-incarceration of people suffering from substance abuse disorder, which, as we have talked about at length in other episodes, is a mental health issue and not a criminal issue. And then the other, the other side of that conversation is the people that are trying to profit off of those people struggling with addiction disorder. And it it gets a little murky when we're when we're having these conversations because where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? How do you determine which people should be punished and which people should be treated? I think you raise a very valid point there and I think that's a, a common problem within the entire criminal justice system in the United States is where exactly do you draw the line? Because, I mean, I'm sure you probably sped above the speed limit a little bit on your drive here today. I sped almost all the way here. And, and we're talking like, what, maybe 10 miles per hour over the speed limit on the freeway? Maybe 15? I was, I was doing 10 miles over the speed limit on the surface street. Yeah, that's I, I went to Home Depot um, about two miles down the road, and the, the speed limit on our main artery is 30 miles per hour. And I know for a fact I clocked at least 40 in most of that. So there's that, which, yes, we broke the law. We're guilty of that. But also I noticed when I was um, pulling off of my residential street onto our main artery, there was someone who was blitzing down the main artery street at, I mean, obviously I'm not a human radar gun, but they were doing, I would say, anywhere from 60 to 80 miles an hour. That is a problem. That is a danger and a risk to everyone else on that street and everyone who walks down that street. The people doing 40, they're not a problem. They're not a threat. They're not going to hurt anyone. 
at the very least, no more so than someone who is following the law. That person who's driving 80 in a residential area with people crossing the road, they are a risk, they are a danger, and they are a threat to the people around them. I think that kind of springboards us into another necessary side conversation when we're talking about criminal justice and the the way we police things. And this goes back to last week's episode really, but one of the one of the main components of criminal justice reform and prison abolition is looking really critically at the laws that we have in place because far too frequently once a law is made, it's not touched again. There's there's no revision to account for anything. So when we're talking about something as arbitrary as a speed limit, those speed limits have been in place for decades. They do not account for updates to the safety of automobiles, the efficacy of braking. They certainly don't account for these cars that can practically drive themselves with very little human intervention. I had the occasion to be in such a car and I didn't understand what was happening at first. And the the person driving me was speeding on a, that's not really a freeway, but kind of like a freeway. It wasn't a surface street, I don't know. How would you describe 9090 through Woodburn? Right. A main arterial road. Like, the, was... you don't have, you know, little Auntie Anne on the corner on her front patio on this road, but you also, it's not like I-5, where you have exits and you have interchanges. Exactly. Um, but the speed limit on that road is 55. He was probably going 65, not super fast, but he didn't slow down. When we started getting close to another car, and I was like, hey, bro, you're freaking me out. And he was like, why? The car will stop us from hitting anything. And I said, what? Okay. Um, So to further build on the example of the person who speeds by 10 miles per hour over the speed limit versus the person who's doing triple the speed limit, um, and you actually raised a, a good example to that with the person who has the the personal use amount of a street drug on their person versus the person who is carting around enough to supply an entire country. Um, that person with the personal use amount of any illicit street drug, they are not a problem. They are not a threat to anyone else. They are not a risk or a danger to the people around them. I mean, we, we can talk about the, the risks and the dangers of these specific substances in a different context, in a different chapter. But for the purpose of this conversation, that person is not presenting a risk to the people around them. They are not presenting a risk to anyone except for themselves, but we all present a risk to ourselves in some way or another. That person, though, who is carting around, you know, multiple kilos of cocaine or who has, you know, entire barrels of meth ready to distribute across the entire Pacific Northwest, that person is a danger to their community. That person is a risk and they are a hazard to the people around them not only because they are supplying a dangerous and illicit substance, but also because they are willing to do things to protect their investments that are not rational. That's a very valid point. And so it, it also plays into the comparison of the capitalist versus the consumer. You know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I went to Home Depot and I bought some Christmas decorations. Is that a risk or a danger? No, not at all. To say so would be absolutely ridiculous. Is the owner of Home Depot or the corporation of Home Depot 
bogarting millions upon millions upon millions of billions of dollars and not distributing those to people who are starving or people who don't have shelter. Is that a problem? Is that a risk? Is that a danger to the community? Absolutely. But it's one that we don't address in a, a the because same manner that, that we address other criminal issues. Because it's not a crime. Well, because the people who write our crimes are the same people who are benefiting from bogarting those millions and millions of dollars. Exactly. You just said something about uh, maintaining order and that being a function of the criminal justice system, and that ties back directly to what we were talking about last week in our, our episode about police. The police really exist as an organization to enforce social order. And so when we're talking about that in terms of our criminal justice system and our carceral system, there are, out of that 2.3 million people, about 200,000 of those people are in prison for disorderly conduct of some manner. So these are the things that, again, capitalists have, have arbitrarily decided are things that are against public interest. What are some examples of public disorder? When we're talking about public disorder violations, we're talking about a, a pretty comprehensive list. It's parole and probation violations. It's immigration violations, weapons, obstruction of justice, traffic, drunk driving, or just being drunk. There's also just a category of public order crimes specifically called morals. So since we're talking already about the things that people are in jail and prison for, let's kind of dial into the other things that people are there for and how those behaviors are criminalized and why socialism is so focused on prison abolition. When we're, when we're looking at people in prison, and I'm, I'm excluding the people who are in jail because they haven't been convicted of anything yet. So when we're looking at the, the 1.3 million people who are in prisons across the country, 200,000 of them are there for murder or manslaughter. Another 165,000 are there for rape or sexual assault. And then we start getting into the crimes that are motivated by that need that we've been talking about. 169,000 people are in prison for robbery. 10,000 people are in prison for car theft. 44,000 are there for theft. 122,000 are there for burglary. 26,000 are there for fraud. So these are those, those nonviolent, quote unquote, property crimes, and sometimes violent assault crimes when we're talking about robbery. Um, but these are the things that are really motivated by need, by this idea of having an unfulfilled need that needs to be met. This then is why we find socialists engaging so frequently and so fervently around the idea of prison abolition, because so much of, of crime that we see is motivated by these needs that socialism will fulfill. And when we're talking specifically about prison, one of the ways that socialism will, will benefit society, aside from just reducing crime based on those needs, is by taking the $182 billion a year that we currently spend on incarcerating people and redirecting that towards other programs, programs that provide housing, programs that secure food, programs that help people keep their, their electricity on and their heat on. Mental health programs. Health insurance programs, absolutely. So what about the people who are in prison because of violent crimes, because of murder or manslaughter, rape, sexual assault? 
So one of the first things anybody is going to hear about when they start interacting with prison abolitionists is the concept of restorative justice. Are you familiar? I've heard it in talking. Okay. Well, restorative justice is an idea that emphasizes accountability for crime by focusing on repairing the harm caused by the crime. And the main way that restorative justice is carried out is by facilitating meetings between victims, offenders, and community members so that everybody can have a chance to air whatever they whatever they need to air about this specific crime and then everybody can work together to find a solution to that specific instance of crime other other facets of restorative justice or or other alternatives to restorative justice are going to be things like fines or community service fine did you really just suggest fine as a means of yeah, punishment i did um that's actually part of the, is, the whole thing is fines okay alternatives to prison mm-hmm. i mean it is a viable alternative but it also leads back to this is just legal for the rich Unless you want to talk about fines proportional to the ability of the person to pay them. That's a, a very important point. It's like a $500 fine for someone who has a net worth of $10 billion is pocket change. But for me, like, a $500 fine is going to be a problem. And, it, like, if I know that a for crime has... people, that is going to be the case. The overwhelming bulk, yes. And if I know that a certain action is punishable by this $500 fine, I'm not going to do it or do everything I can to not get caught doing it. But someone who's, you know, even someone who's making $300,000, $400,000 a year, they might not put as much effort into not getting caught or they might not think so so seriously about avoiding that action. Because for for someone with more financial resources, it's not going to be as big a deal. Whereas if you have a fine that is based on the, the net value or the assets of an individual, it actually incentivizes compliance with that social order. Which, I'm trying to think of a real-world example where they actually do that. Which part? I think it's Norway, possibly, where they actually find... I think it's specifically regarding littering. I should probably be trying to find a source. But I think it's Norway that... Basically, the fine that they levy against you for littering is is proportional to your net value. Or to your net worth. So the system that you're talking about is called a day fine system, which includes a fine payment that is based on an offender's daily personal income. This is a practice employed by Denmark, Finland, India, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and places in the United States. But largely, here in the U.S., what we see is these static fines that are frequently out of reach and for people that find themselves unable to pay those fines those are people who are coming back into the carceral system those are the people who are in prison for public order violations that are based on parole or probation violations because those fines are part of their probationary sentencing i want to talk about the myth that prison solves crime. Because if prison performed the function that most Americans think prison performs, we wouldn't see recidivism at all. And there, there is obviously evidence that prison works for some people, but again, for violent offenders, a 64% recidivism rate isn't great. 
36 times out of 100, they're successful, but the other 64 times, they're failing. And I don't know about you, but if I went to work and I failed at 64% of my job... I would be fired in a haste. Exactly. So, there's this idea that prison performs this vital function for American society by rehabilitating these people that have committed crimes and getting them to a state where they are quote unquote fit to re-enter society and the the data doesn't support that so outside of people committing crimes for whatever reason whether they're need-based crimes or crimes of passion or what have you there are a number of other groups of people that are incarcerated regularly. And this is, I, I feel, a very, very small number, especially compared to, I think, how some people would like to discuss it. Uh, but there are people who are out there, I've seen them, I've talked to them, who willfully choose to commit crimes as blatantly and publicly as possible so that they are arrested and convicted because their current life is in such shambles that going to prison, even just for a year, year and a half, would be a relief. And this is not to say that prison in any of its incarnations here in the United States is in any way pleasant or a vacation, but that for some people in America, everyday life is so crappy and so bad that going to prison is better. That having shelter, having regular food, even if it's really gross, bad food, and having health care and having people around, because we are social creatures, and even if it's a bunch of other criminals, having other people around is better than being alone outside with no food and no shelter. So for some people, prison is the better alternative because they are not having their very basic needs met. I think it's really important to talk about the money involved in that, because it's easy to say somebody might only go to prison for a year, maybe two years, and, and brush that aside like it's not that big a deal, but the typical cost of housing an inmate for a year can be as high as $60,000. Absolutely. So when we're talking about this on a really wide scale, like the 338 million people that live in this country, even if we're only talking about 1% of the population, that's a lot of people, and that is an overwhelming amount of money that we are dumping into this system of, of incarceration instead of resolving the circumstances that led those people to make that decision. Another group that is absolutely vital to talk about are people struggling with mental illness because there are at any point in time 10 to 15,000 people in prisons across the country who are there because they are suffering from mental illness. Because in a moment of crisis, the police intervened and instead of getting them the necessary medical help, they decided that it was a criminal matter and that these people needed to go to jail. We also need to talk about the disastrous war on drugs and the way that that has disproportionately affected the black community. Because in the United States, black people account for about 13% of the population, but fully half of the 2.3 million people in our, in our prison systems. And this is not due to black people having a higher predilection towards crime, this is due to the enforced black neighborhoods, which we discussed in our last episode, being targeted and being policed more intensely than other neighborhoods by white neighborhoods. So when you have more police who are the ones who, in a court of law, if a police officer says this person committed a crime, that is seen as evidentiary material. So if this cop or if a cop sees a person in this black community, let's assume that person is black, if 
that cop sees that person doing something that violates the law, that person is going to go to prison. And because there's a higher concentration of police in those neighborhoods, there's going to be a higher concentration of the residents of those neighborhoods going to prison. And with an estimated 6.8 million people in America who are struggling with substance abuse issues and addiction disorder, it is only logical that we are going to keep seeing increases in prison populations over time because that's 6.8 million people with a medical disorder that are not receiving treatment that are being criminalized and put through our criminal justice system and then put in prison. Another really important part of prison abolition work is the focus on the social and economic fallout for people convicted and their communities. Because each person that is put in prison represents an economic asset that has been removed from their community. That puts an undue burden on the remaining parent to provide all of the needs that need to be met for themselves and whatever children there may be in the household. And there are devastating economic impacts to our criminal justice and incarceration systems. Having a felony on your record for something as unnecessary as having a personal amount of drugs on your body that can keep you from getting jobs, that can keep you from securing housing, that can have unintended consequences for parents who are no longer with their co-parent, in a, in a relationship with their co-parent. It can interfere with how they get to interact with their children. And in, in a lot of places across the country, having a felony on your record still takes you out of our political processes. For the overwhelming majority of the country, that's the case. And um, again, that's by design. That is, a, that is the system working at full capacity, 100% as it was designed to function. Because, um, again, going back to the, the abolition of slavery and the, the need for cheap labor on the fly... What we, what we know is that they, they took away the rights of people convicted of felonies to participate in our electoral processes. But at the same time, by, by criminalizing this population of black people specifically, the goal was not only to still have access to their cheap to unpaid labor, but also to disenfranchise them from our voting system so that they can't help or they can't vote for the policies or the candidates that would make their lives better in any meaningful way. It's a, it's a measure to uphold the status quo. I wanted to talk about what prisons look like in actual socialist countries, but I don't think we've hit a good segue to that. Because we probably, like in any context where we talk about abolishing an institutional system, we have to think about, in all practicality, can we achieve a point where prisons do not exist? And yes, we can hit a point where prisons, as we know them today, do not exist. Because the prisons of today don't work. First of all, for their stated purposes, they just don't work. They don't prevent crime. They don't keep people from pre from committing future crimes. They're not an effective deterrent, just like a police presence isn't an effective deterrent. As you've mentioned already, they are expensive as hell. On average, you said, what, $60,000 a year, a year per, per person. person. And to be honest, I live comfortably, but I don't make $60,000 a year. I would be more comfortable at $60,000 a year, absolutely. So why is it that a system that isn't working, or at least isn't working to what we have been told is its purpose, that is costing us so much money, why is it allowed to continue to exist when there are better alternatives and when there are 
other systems that are doing what we are told prisons are supposed to do at not particularly less of a cost, if I remember my numbers right, but that preserve the quality of life for the people inside them that actually work to rehabilitate and to restore the individual's ability to contribute to society, largely through education and skill training. We look at the prisons of Norway specifically, and we see if you don't have a contextual clue to tell you that it's a prison in Norway, you're going to think this is your college dorm. You see twin beds, you see a writing desk, you see windows without bars in them, you see bathrooms, you see bed linens and pillows that are, you know, maybe not your idea of comfortable, but they certainly are more than adequate. And you see aggressive, structured education programs, you see skill building programs, and you see concerted, organized efforts to rehabilitate violent offenders. Because in Norway, which is a socialist society, they have recognized that the overwhelming bulk of the people that commit crimes don't belong in a prison, and the people who do need to be in a prison, who do need to be cohorted and sequestered away from the general public, are still people and they still need to live with some measure of decency and dignity and they need to have the means at their fingertips to escape the cycle of police and prison so that they don't keep going back to prison every time they get out. <laughs> I want to talk about this idea of um, education and job skills training because we we see this with increasing frequency here in the United States. For instance, here in Oregon in 1994, voters overwhelmingly passed Ballot Measure 17, the Prison Reform and Inmate Work Act. And what that did was make it so that prisoners were expected to work 40 hours a week while they were incarcerated. In the kind of an attempt to offset the cost of, of keeping them incarcerated. And of those 40 hours, education or treatment programs could count towards that, but a minimum of 20 hours per week had to be actual work. And that work manifests as something as simple as working in the kitchen and preparing food for the, the facility that an individual is housed in. It can be something like working in a prison call center. It can be something as seemingly innocuous but currently dangerous as washing all of the laundry for a hospital system. There are, are many manifestations of this across the country and the the unfortunate thing about this is that even though we are legally requiring these people to work a minimum of 20 hours a week, the most they make is $3.78 a day. At the same time that they're making that $3.78 a day. And while education can be part of their 40-hour requirement, they still have to pay for their education. For instance, at, at one of the prisons here in Oregon, there's an automotive program that inmates can enroll in. It's $25 per term. That's eight days of work. I was about to bring up what I would consider to be the most obvious replacement in situ of the modern prison system, and that is mandatory rehab. For drivers' offenses. Okay. For people who are convicted of crimes relating to specifically the use of currently illegal illicit street substances, obviously this is not going to include those people we talked about earlier who are manufacturing and selling massive amounts of these substances. We are talking about 
the people who are using an illicit substance to manage an addiction disorder that they suffer from. These people can be identified easily and can be diverted from the prison system into rehab and mental health treatment centers where they can actually get help that they need. And Oregon actually has recently taken um, a very small baby step in that direction by um, decriminalizing the possession of small personal use amounts of these illicit substances and taking funding, which I'm not 100% a fan of how they got this funding. They took it from our schools, but they're putting this funding towards these rehab and mental health programs to help these people who are struggling with addiction actually get the help that they need and be able to confront and deal with their addiction and with their mental health problems to the end goal of not having to depend on these dangerous substances anymore. And I am 100% on board with implementing some kind of mandatory treatment program slash rehabilitation for people who are suffering from addiction disorder and are in prison because of it or could be in prison in the future if we don't get rid of prisons. But the, the thing about those programs is that they, they can't be what our government has decided is okay. We currently have the same kind of 12-step program that you see in a, something like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous at play in our prison system. This isn't evidence-based treatment. In fact, we have overwhelming amounts of evidence that 12-step programs fail more than they succeed. And people swear up and down by these programs. Our, our elected officials swear up and down by these programs, and that's why they have been implemented to such extent within our prison system, is because we have these people that don't have a background in psychiatry, they don't have a background in behavioral health of any kind, they don't understand the biological parts of addiction disorder, they don't understand how drugs work, they just think, drugs bad, we fix you. And they, just like a caveman, go at it with this 12-step program club, and if we're going to talk meaningfully about prison abolition, we have to look very critically at any proposed alternatives. And that includes being hypercritical of what we're going to look at for treatment of addiction disorder. And I think to springboard off of that, um, to also, um, just a fun little side note here, um, quite often for first-time minor drug offenders, judges will give the offender the choice, do you want to spend X days in jail, prison, whatever, or do you want to complete a 12-step program? Obviously, you are going to choose the 12-step program. And if you fail at that, oh well, you're back where you started. So there's really, there is incentive to do it, but it's a program that's not gonna work. And if you do fail at it, you're still gonna go to jail. So you're back to square one. But that represents more taxpayer money that could be going to other programs to meaningfully enhance the lives of, of average Americans that we are dropping into putting these people through the criminal justice system repeatedly because what we're doing is failing them. And also, all of this, the rehab in lieu of prison, all of that would be absolutely meaningless and completely ineffectual to a almost funny degree. Like, a, a, a sort of context you really only see in a Hollywood comedy if we don't establish universal health care at the exact same time so that when these people who have addiction disorder go through rehab and and meet the requirements of the state of the judiciary and they are quote-unquote done with rehab and are released back into society they need to continue to have 
consistent and reliable access to quality mental and medical health care. And we are not going to have that until we have universal health care and until we have a consistent quality health care delivery system underneath social medicine. As a final fact. Uh, at, like, there are some parts of the socialist platform that are so critical and so important that without them, there's no point in, in talking about the rest. If, exactly. if we don't have universal housing and if we don't have universal health care and we don't have... And, and anytime we say universal housing, I almost feel like like it is an obvious when we when we say that we are also talking universal utilities, universal water, universal internet. Because yes, in the 21st century in America, high-speed internet is an essential utility. It is as essential as water and electricity. So when we say universal housing, I think those should be a given. But without that and without universal health care, none of these changes are going to be in any way meaningful. We can abolish the prisons all we want, but all that's going to happen if we do that without that infrastructure of universal health care and universal housing is create this vacuum and the people who are currently benefiting from the prison system and who currently benefit from the police system, they're just going to go back out and say, well, look at the chaos, look at the mess. This is what you've brought on yourselves. This has been a complete failure. Everything that comes along with this is going to be a failure. And so they're going to say, you know, if, if you were the one who said, we should abolish the police. Well, we did that and that failed. So if you're now telling us that we should establish universal health care, that's also going to fail. That's also going to be a mess. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at Social Cast Pod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash SocialCast.